Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. If you're new with us this morning, we have been in the series, a series through Mark for the last couple months, and we are in chapter six. <laughs> uh, we're sometimes a little slow going, but that's not a bad thing because you get to explore just about every verse of the book that we're in. So we've been in, in Mark, and if you're somebody who's new and you want to catch up uh, to where we're at, or you want to go pick apart maybe a passage that you've not read yet that's in those first six chapters of Mark, you can follow us on YouTube or anywhere that you might listen to a podcast, Spotify, Apple Music. Uh, I don't even know what other ones are out there. Those are the two I use. Um, but you can find us and catch up whenever you'd like to. But we're going to go ahead and jump right into Mark chapter 6. Today we're going to be looking at verse 45 through 56. And let's just jump right in. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowds. We're going to just pause there a minute so that I can help set the scene a little bit. If you remember last week, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000. And Pastor Chad pointed out that it probably wasn't just 5,000 people, because the 5,000 more than likely was just referencing the number of men who were there. It was probably more like 15,000 or more people, right? So we're talking about a huge crowd. And if it wasn't miracle enough that God turned a couple of loaves of bread and a couple of fish into food for 5,000, really it was more like 15,000. So we're talking about these huge crowds. And it's right there picking up after that miracle uh, that we find ourselves this morning. And when you read it, it doesn't say a lot about why Jesus dismissed the crowd and sent his disciples across the sea in the boat. But if you look at chapter 6 of John's gospel, you actually see a different perspective of the same story. Same story, same basic points, but from the eyes of one of the other disciples. And this is what it says in John 6, verse 14 through 15. After the people saw the signs Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew to a mountain by himself. All right, so there's a, a little more detail there, right? The, the crowds are getting worked up into a frenzy. They're excited. They want to see this guy, Jesus, become more than just somebody who's doing miracles. They want to see him become a, a leader, somebody who could bring them back to independence, who could gain their, their freedom back from Rome. See, this, the place where they're at, more than likely Galilee, was a hotbed for revolution. And that's this, the space that they find themselves in. And they, there's energy is just ramping up. They saw Jesus' power, and they wanted to make him king. And seeing this, Jesus sent his disciples away. He didn't want them to get caught up in the frenzy that was happening. He didn't want them to get caught up in, in, in all of this excitement because God had a different plan than for Jesus to become king. Right? Jesus' plan was to become a humble servant and to go and die on the cross. But if the disciples had gotten worked up, had gotten their, their minds twisted a little bit and thought Jesus was supposed to be a king, maybe things turn out a little differently. So Jesus puts them in a boat and he sends them 
across the sea. It was God's will. It was Jesus' faithfulness to that will, right? To not usurp his power and become king. And the disciples' obedience that puts them in the boat. And that's where we're going to pick back up in verse 46 through 48. After he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he alone was on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Let's just pause there for a minute. As soon as the disciples were in the boat and the crowds were on the way, Jesus went off to pray. If you look through the Bible many times, uh, when Jesus has opposition in his ministry, where his disciples are seen um, with opposition that might shift them from God's plan, God's will, we see Jesus in prayer. We see him go to prayer. Or you think about the temptation in the desert, right? Jesus is in the desert for 40 days. He's fasting. He's praying. He's spending time with his father. And at the end of that, he's tempted. And those 40 days of prayer were spent well. Then you see him right here. Again, his disciples are being tempted. And Jesus goes off to pray. Later on in the garden, when Jesus is praying that, that God would take the burden of going to the cross off of Christ's shoulders, Christ is in the garden praying. He's praying for his disciples that, that after he's gone, that they would be unified, that they would continue to spread the gospel, that they would be an example. And then after Christ's resurrection, you see the disciples picking up where Jesus left off. He's up in the upper, they're up in the upper room, right? They're praying they're worshiping, and then the Holy Spirit comes and dwells upon them. It's an amazing thing to see the way that they followed Jesus' example. But anytime Jesus has a strong opposition in his ministry, we see him go to prayer. And as Jesus is up on that mountain, more than likely this is around the time of Passover, so there was probably a full moon, or at least a close to full moon. So it's bright. He's looking down off the mountain. He can see everything that's happening. He can see them straining. They're, they're pulling at the oars as hard as they can. They're not making any ground. They're kind of stuck, or they're maybe losing a little bit, bit of ground. And he can see all of this happening. He can see them struggling. The passage says that they were making headway painfully. Some other translations say that they were straining at the oars. And if you look at the Greek, it meant that they were being tortured. Right? They were giving it everything they had. They were giving every last ounce of energy they had so they could try to get across the sea. The wind's blowing them off course. They weren't making any kind of headway. Actually, if you look at the map, you can kind of get an idea of where everything's happening. So the feeding of the 5,000, we believe, was right around here. They were trying to get to Bethsaida up there. And as you're going to find out in just a minute as we continue reading, they wound up in Gennesaret. <laughs> Nowhere close to where they intended to be. They got blown so far off course. And more than likely, somewhere in the middle of the Sea of Galilee is where this miracle happens. It kind of puts things in perspective a little bit. The thing is, the picture that Mark is trying to paint isn't one of the disciples terrified in a storm that's threatening to swamp the boat. It's one where the disciples are frustrated and weary. Right? They've been going at it all night, probably six, seven, eight hours and they are at their wit's end. If you can imagine, I mean, a lot of the disciples were used to being on the water. This wasn't anything new to them, but not gaining ground was something new. Oh, after a couple hours, you got to imagine maybe Peter being a little bullheaded, as we all know he was, 
probably stands up and he's yelling at the disciples, row, row, row. And you just, you know, you think of his beard. Anybody watch Survivor besides me? Am I the only one? Right. Anybody remember Rupert? Right. This big, strong, burly guy with a huge beard. That's how I picture Peter. When I read the Bible and I think of Peter, that's who I think of. And you just think he's got water dripping off, probably spit flying. The disciples are rowing. They're freezing cold because it's the middle of the night. They're covered in water and they are just, they've had it. You can just imagine the frustration that's building up. Right. This isn't the way it's supposed to work. They're supposed to be able to get to the other side. And you wonder if in the back of their minds, they're thinking, man, if Jesus hadn't made us get in this boat, if we had just disobeyed what he said, we'd be at, we'd be at home, right? We'd be on shore. We'd probably be in a warm bed right about now. Maybe we'd be eating a meal. We'd be sharing stories about all the, the miracles that Jesus has done. We'd be sharing in, in Jesus' glory a little bit. Maybe Jesus would be king by now. And we're stuck here in this stinking boat, freezing cold, not making any ground. Right? Their obedience led them directly into discomfort, while disobedience had the appearance of comfort and security. And it's in this moment that Jesus goes out to them. Right? They're at the height of despair. They're frustrated. They're exhausted. They've had it. I mean, we see what Jesus has to do or has to say to them in 48 through, through 52. I'm going to pick up right at the end of 48. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts had been hardened. In the height of their frustration, they didn't even recognize Jesus. This guy that they'd been walking with for, for months, if not years at this point, they didn't even, they couldn't recognize him. And he comes across the water, and they think he's a ghost. They're a little freaked out. It's kind of like a ready kind of moment for them. <laughs> like, who is this guy? What is this ghost coming out to us? And they're terrified. In verse 48, he meant to pass by them. He's not trying to sneak by. He's not trying to sneak by under, the, by under the cover of night to get to the other side. He's not trying to beat them. He's not trying to pull a trick on them. If you think back to the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 33, Moses is, is up on the mountain communicating with God. And he wants to see his face. Remember that story? And God tells him to stand in the, in the crook of the rock and he'll cover his face as he passes by. And then once he's by, Moses can, can see the back of him. And he gets to catch a glimpse of God as he passes by. And then there's this other moment when Elijah is out Mount Horeb. And he's frustrated. He's at its wit's end, kind of like the disciples. He's complaining. And God says he's going to come and speak to him. And then there's the storm, Right? There's a rushing wind. There's all this commotion. And God's not, not in any of that, but he's in the quiet whisper after the storm. And in that moment, as God, again, passes by Elijah, in the quiet after the storm, Elijah hears God's will and he receives his commission of the next thing to do. He gets his encouragement. He catches a glimpse of who God is. 
And just like that, that's what Jesus intends to do in this moment. This moment of Jesus passing by them is an opportunity for divine revelation. An opportunity to catch a glimpse of who God really is. And they're so frustrated, they're so, they're so lost that they can't see it. They see, first they see a ghost. <laughs> then they see a friend. But they don't see God. God, Jesus had done miracles, right? He'd done all sorts of miracles. He'd done miracles to show us primacy over the Sabbath, right? And, and healing the withered, the hand, the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath, he had shown that he was Lord over the Sabbath. Later, he showed that he was Lord over the purity laws by healing the woman, right? The, the woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years by spending time with the unclean, with those whose society had deemed cast outs who the law said were not worthy to be in the presence of God. God was in their presence in the form of Jesus. He showed himself Lord over the bread that they ate in the story just before this one by multiplying the fishes and the loaves. And now he's showing himself the Lord over creation by walking on the water. It brings to mind the words of Job 9, 8 through 11 that says, Who alone stretches out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? Who made the bear in Orion, the Pleiades, and the chamber of the south? Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number? Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. And that's exactly where the disciples found themselves. Totally missing out. They've been living with Jesus. They've been seeing his miracles for quite some time and they don't even recognize him coming out to them. They don't recognize that he's God. Right? This failing to recognize his figure on the water is symptomatic of a bigger issue, and that is they still don't comprehend that he is God. Right? They believe he's powerful. They believe he has authority. But they don't understand that he is the son of God who has come to save men. They've been given every reason to believe. They've been given every opportunity to understand. And still they take it for granted. And it makes me wonder at times, how many of us take it for granted when God, when God passes by us? Right? When God provides for us? When it's maybe the small thing in our day that God is showing himself in control of things. How often do we take, take it for granted and just assume that that's just the way things were, were meant to be? That's just how things are happening? Or we have something that we did? <laughs> how many times is God passing by us and, and we're missing out on it? And in this moment, Jesus has every right to be frustrated. <laughs> but instead, what he says is, take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Right? Even after the disciples' complete and utter failure to understand and to comprehend who Jesus is, he holds back his disappointment and he comforts them. He had every right to be at, irritated at the least. But if he is, he doesn't show it. He says, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Right? This is what makes Jesus different. This is what makes Jesus from di different from all those other gods that other religions claim. And it's what makes the gospel compelling. He's not judgmental. He's patient. He's willing to respond even when we seem completely blind to what he's doing in our lives. After continually dropping the ball, Jesus still offers the disciples grace and he still offers us grace. 
read from a historical standpoint, this story is kind of cool, right? It's a pretty cool, interesting physical phenomenon, a guy walking on water. It's clearly a supernatural miracle. It's where we get that phrase, walking on water, which has become like a synonymous with something unbelievable, right? But read from a gospel standpoint, this story is comfort for fearful disciples. It's comfort for those who have a wavering faith in the midst of storms. Sometimes our faith begins to waver and we're willing to receive me. Is Jesus, do I believe enough? Is God still willing to receive me? Is Jesus still willing to receive me if my faith is wavering right now? Just like he said to the disciples, he says to us, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. As you continue reading the story, through the end, it says, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored on the shore. When they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many touched it, were made well. Immediately, they recognized him. As soon as, that, as soon as he got out of the boat, they knew who he, who he was. And at first glance, it seems like these people have a better recognition for who Jesus is than the disciples do. Right? For a second, that's what you think. But then you, you look at it a little more. For these people on the shore, there was no storm. Right? They were never caught out on the sea. They were never stuck making no headway. I imagine things are a little better now. It's, it's daylight. It's probably warming up. Jesus is here. That's awesome. <laughs> They're desperate. They're sick, and they know that Jesus has the power to heal. Everything is going right for these people. Everything is headed in the right direction, I should say. Maybe not going right, but headed in the right direction. And the thing is, they don't really see Jesus for who he is. They see him for his power and his wonder. They see him for what they can get. They know that if they go to Jesus, if they reach out, if they touch him, they can be healed. And even though they have no clue who they're in the presence of, Jesus responds anyway. They're healed anyway. And the heartbreaking part of this really is, though, is that these people who were sick, they were reaching out for a physical healing, which is great. It would have totally changed their life. It's great. But what's heartbreaking about it is they're completely blind to see that the person who they're in the presence of, that they're reaching out to, has so much more to offer them than physical healing. Right? They're focused on what's right in front of their face. They're focused on the temporary. And what he has to offer them is eternal. A restoration between them and God. They have a narrow perspective they're limited by their life experience. They're limited by what they can see and by what they can hear, which apparently isn't much. <laughs> and it wonder, made me wonder, you know, would it change after the resurrection? After they heard the stories about Jesus dying on the cross and being buried, and three days later, the disciples showing up and his body being gone, would it change what they thought about the disciples? And it also made me think, how many of us are willing to settle for having our physical needs met? How many of us are willing 
to settle for our physical needs met without hoping for and reaching out for the better thing. So as I wrap up here, I've got a couple of points of application. Right? The first one is simple. Obedience doesn't always result in sunshine and roses. <laughs> in fact, it sometimes takes us directly into the storm. Sometimes our obedience is going to be the thing that takes us directly into the storm. It's going to take us directly into the place that we don't want to be. Helen Rosevere, she's a missionary to the Congo. Uh, in the 1960s, during their, uh, the Congolese Civil War, she went there. She, she established hospitals and medical schools. And in 1964, she was taken prisoner, and she was beaten, and terrible things were done to her. After five months, she was released. She went home to England. She was there for less than two years. In 1964 or 1966, she went back to that exact same mission field to rebuild the exact same hospitals that she had already built once because they had been torn down and destroyed. Her obedience was taking her back into the storm she had already been through and survived once. She was ready to go back. Right, Corey Tenboom, you've probably heard of her, a Dutch watchmaker. She, her sister, and her father were helping Jews escape the Holocaust, or help, help escape the Nazis during the Holocaust. They were arrested. Her father and her sister, Betsy, both died. They were taken to Ravensbrück. But they continued to lead worship services and conduct prayer services for the people who were around them to give hope through this dark time. Right? In both these stories, God was glorified because their obedience in and through the storm. Right? Had they survived it, had it never happened, had they just helped, just helped the Jews escape, it would have been great, right? Lots of people's lives would have been changed. It would have been good for humanity. But they helped all these people escape. They were arrested. They went to prison. And because of their obedience and their perseverance through that situation, now we have a story that continues to change lives today. Their obedience through the storm is so important. Have faith to walk through the storms with Christ which I know is easier said than done. Right? Some of you may be going through a storm right now and you're like the disciples. It feels like you're making absolutely no headway. You're giving it everything you got and you're just kind of stuck. It's easier said than done, but have faith to walk through the storms with Jesus Christ. The second thing, sometimes we need to be faithful even when we don't see or recognize God in the moment. As I wrote that, and read over it a couple times, I realized that's worded a little weird. <laughs> we always need to be faithful, even though sometimes we won't see or recognize God. If the order of the words in verse 50 is very important, right? We want to say, God, show me yourself. Show me yourself, and I won't be afraid. But God says, Have faith, don't be afraid and you'll see me. And that distinction is very important. We have to have faith through the storms. Have faith, don't be afraid, and you'll see me. In the middle of their storm, the disciples were not looking for Jesus. Right? They, just, they just wanted a way out. And they missed the opportunity to see and understand a side of Christ that they had never seen before. 
Storms shape our understanding of God in a way that only storms can shape our understanding of God. The third thing, don't take God for granted. The disciples spent every moment of every day with Christ and they still missed it. They still didn't get it. I think over time, they kind of start to take it for granted what was happening around them. And they stopped looking for something more and just accepted Jesus for the power and the authority that he had. And the same can happen to us, right? We sometimes grow numb to God's presence. We grow numb to God's provision for us and we begin to take it for granted, right? Everything that we have is not guaranteed. Life isn't guaranteed. Finances isn't guaranteed. Health isn't guaranteed. The only thing guaranteed is the relationship that we can have with Christ and spending eternity with him. That's it. And sometimes we begin to take those other things for granted for the blessings that they really are. I love the way that one of my commentaries put it this week. To follow Jesus is to keep venturing out past our comfort zone. The encouragement is that God does not forsake us when our hearts are hardened. God continues to take the initiative. God gives us parables. God comes to us in the night when we are making absolutely no headway. God's faithfulness is greater than our fear, greater than our sin, and greater than our unbelief. God knows at times we're going to take things for granted. We're human beings after all. We're certainly nowhere close to perfect. But it doesn't change things. We shouldn't take for God for granted. But if you find yourself there, if you realize, you know what, I've been taking for God for granted. I've not been giving him the glory he deserves. I've not been giving him the faith he deserves. Take hope because he has more grace than we can begin to imagine. Forgiveness is just a matter matter of asking because God's already given it to us. And the last thing is, don't settle for a partial healing. The people on the shore, they settled for a partial healing. A lot of the things that we ask for from God are temporary. There's something that we want right now in this moment because of what we can see before our eyes. We need to learn to shift from the temporary to the eternal. And everything that we do shift from the temporary to the eternal. So this morning... If you're here and you've not given your life to Christ yet, I want to just encourage you to take this morning as a chance to do that. Ask the questions you need to ask. But the thing is, we're not always going to have every single answer. right? The disciples, they were with him all the time. They didn't have every every answer. They missed it. It seems like most of the time. But Jesus still said, take heart. It is I. Don't be afraid. He still reached out to them. He's still willing to forgive them. If you're here this morning and you have unanswered questions, take the step of faith anyways, right? That's part of what faith is. Take the step of faith and continue learning. Know that God is out there. Jesus has forgiven you. And really, that's what matters. We need to put our faith in Christ and say, okay, I'm willing to walk this road with you. I'll learn as I go. I only know this much now. Ten years from now, I'm going to know this much and that's okay. Just keep growing. So as I pray, I want to just encourage you, if you've not accepted Christ yet, just pray along with me. Just pray, repent, right? We've talked a lot about repentance in this series, about leaving what the old way was and turning 180 degrees to walk with God and do something completely new, to become a new creation. That's what God's calling us to do. 
Repent of your sin, ask for forgiveness, and give your life to Christ. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. I thank you for the the grace that you extend us on a regular basis when we don't see you for who you are. God, forgive us for taking for granted the things that you do in our lives. God, I pray this morning that if there's anybody in this room who's asking if you exist, who's wondering what it looks like to do life with you, to be forgiven, God, I just pray that they would ask for that forgiveness, that they would step across that line of faith right now and just figure things out as we go. God, I pray this morning that you would continue to walk through us in our storms. God, we thank you for being the God who sent your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for us, and I thank you for your grace, your love, your hope, and your mercy. I pray that everything we do as we leave this place would glorify your name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.